Hello, and welcome to The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. I am the founder of The New Story Company and the host of this podcast. The New Story Is is a show that explores the shared stories and narratives of our time and the ones that shape and influence us for better or for worse. Our guest today knows a thing or two about the stories that we inherit from society and culture especially the ones that really place, uh, I guess we could say, an incredibly unkind pressure on so many people, uh, including pressures to want to look different or feel different or to change ourselves to feel more accepted by by the world around us uh, in a world that really seems to value some people more than others. I'm joined today by Caroline Dooner. Caroline is a humorist. She's a storyteller and the author of two books. Her first is called The Fuck It Diet, uh, and her second is called Tired as Fuck, Burnout at the Hands of Diet, Self-Help, and Hustle Culture. I'm a big fan of, of the, the F word, so I'm really enjoying the titles of your books, Caroline. Um, but far, far from a self-help book. I am too. Can you yeah, tell? I can definitely tell. Far from a self-help book, as Caroline will soon tell you, Tired as Fuck blends uh, a really characteristic sense of humor, which I really appreciate, uh, alongside some very frank and very vulnerable uh, memoir-style storytelling about her personal history, uh, in particular as a chronic dieter as well as her experience with undiagnosed eating disorders since childhood, and some really blistering and poignant social observations about modern burnout culture. Uh, Tired as Fuck also explores the pressures that we all feel to constantly self-improve and, and be hyperproductive, and how toxic it can really be to feel like we all have to become the quote-unquote best versions of ourselves. So we're going to talk about that and more today. Caroline, without further ado, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's so fun to hear those, like a description of, <laughs> I struggle with describing myself so much. So it's fun to hear someone else say it. <laughs> it's always easier. Right? The hardest story, I, I was told this once long ago, the hardest story to tell is always our own. I feel like because we're so close to ourselves. But from an outside point of view, especially reading a book or books like yours, um, even though, you know, even, even the, the greatest like memoir or personal narrative book can't possibly capture the totality of a person. I feel like your writing style, the stories that you tell are so candid that your book is really like walking along with you on a journey to go exploring these really big and, and daunting topics and ideas. Um, but, but I'm glad that the introduction felt like it was honoring to, to you and your work. Oh my gosh. I know. Well, well, what I really have found is like, I can explain it all. If you give me, uh, you know, 70,000 words, <laughs> but if you make me, That's right. it's all it takes. If you make me make it three sentences, I really struggle. That's right. So let's start Caroline with your first book, which came out in 2019. It's called the fuck it diet. Um, Let's just start by just kind of like pulling the threads around that book, how it came to be, and what inspired you to first sit down and write about your experiences with diet culture in particular. Yeah. So 10 years ago now, um, actually, oh my gosh, it was almost exactly 10 years ago that I started this very tiny blog that I really did not think many people would ever read. And it was called The Fuck It Diet. And I was on a journey to heal my relationship with food. And I tried so many times before. So I, I mean, it had been a goal, such like a huge, huge, huge part of my life to try and first diet perfectly, which had never worked. I had constantly been going from diet to diet to diet, wondering what was wrong with me. Why can't I stay on the diet? Why am I binging? Why am I so addicted to food? And then I tried intuitive eating and that seemed to backfire on me as well because I didn't realize I was still turning it into a diet. And I had this new realization that my obsession with weight and my attempts to micromanage the amount of food I was eating at every single meal was the reason that I was so dysfunctional with food. And there were many things that, you know, that, that kind of happened to make me have these realizations. And I explained that actually in the, in the second book, Tired as Fuck, but I was reading science and all of the stuff that I didn't understand why we didn't 
know this, uh, you know, like as, as, as a culture, why was this hidden knowledge about the way that we're meant to nourish ourselves? Why are we all thinking that we are food addicts when it's really stemming from these really, really basic fundamental biological mechanisms <laughs> that we're not meant to restrict our food? We're not meant to. It's going to lead to what feels like a food addiction. So I was, I was researching, I was trying to apply it to myself and I was just writing about it as like a creative project because I needed an outlet and it felt really important, but I started a million blogs before that had never gone anywhere. So I had no, I had no reason to believe that this would take off, that people would read it, that it would become my career or that I would write a book about it seven years later. Um, but I was just really writing and, and sharing. And because it was so small, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't overthinking anything. I was just, I was just writing. Um, and it grew, it had a mind of its own. It had a life of its own and it grew into something that, um, you know, people, people really resonated with it. They would email me and say that it changed their life. You know, I didn't know if my experience was going to be universal. I thought maybe it was just me, but it really resonated with a lot of people. And it grew to a place where I was able to write a book about it. And, um, luckily that led to a place where I was able to write a second book. So it's been this, it's been this crazy journey and it's had this life of its own, but, um, yeah, healing my relationship with food and writing about it. And really it's been this, like so many times in my life, I've had these like kind of deep feelings of how can this be right? Like, how can this be the way it's supposed to be? there's something isn't right and something else is going on. And I'm lucky for that because it's led to the experiences that, that I've had and helping me to kind of untangle the, the mess and the confusion that I've been in, in so many different aspects of my life. But that is how the fuck diet came to be. Yeah. Well, you mentioned there, Caroline, that you've always kind of had this, sense of like social observation of kind of like this incisive, well, what I would call like an incisive manner of getting to the heart of something that just doesn't kind of add up to you. It doesn't kind of, it just like doesn't make sense. And that's what I really appreciate about your work or one of the things, one of the many things I appreciate about your work in, in the fuck it diet specifically, you say that diet culture is a subset of our society's obsession with control and, and our kind of like shared worship of self punishment. Could you tell us a little bit or, or give us an example of like how that manifests? Because for some of our listeners, I'm sure we're just thinking like dieting is just like what is real. We have to manage right. calories. <laughs> you know, we, we go down that we, we have to find the right like food sets or subsets of a diet that work for us. And, and maybe for some people that's true, but your, your work has found that your research has found and your personal experiences have all found that, um, that dieting, doesn't work a and b that it really feels insidious if you really look under the hood of why and how diet cultures come to be yeah well i think for so many people whether they realize it or not dieting is becomes a manifestation of our control issues and our our desire to be able to control the parts of life that are not in our control and it kind of becomes this perfect, this perfect way to, it, it, it takes care of so many things at once because it, it kind of allows us to suppress our emotions. Like it, it, it's a, it's an amazing distraction from what's really going on a lot of times because, uh, you know, eating less calories puts us into this sort of uh, sometimes euphoric state that's, it's not sustainable, but it feels really amazing in the beginning. And it's because we have to, we have to survive on stress hormones and it, it feels really good for a time being until we crash and binge and wonder why we're so irritable and what's wrong with us. And why are we constantly thinking about food and snapping at people? Um, but it can feel really good in the beginning on, on a, on a very chemical level, on a very physical level. And then there's just the distraction. Like it, it's a, it's such a focus and it's such a socially acceptable, uh, distraction and focus 
that it's a way to, to ignore the parts of our lives that are too difficult to deal with. And we kind of we're told or, or with, you know, in so many words, we're told in our culture that this is going to fix everything. So it feels like it's actually, it doesn't feel like it's a distraction. It feels like it's a, it's a solution to our problems. Well, if we just figure out the perfect diet and stick to it and, and do it perfectly, we're not only going to become beautiful and loved and adored, which will make most of our problems go away, but it will make us extremely healthy and we'll have no problems anymore and we'll live forever. And, you know, we don't, maybe we don't think that consciously, but there's so much in it. There's so much wrapped in what people call diet culture and in, you know, why we get stuck in a loop of going from diet to diet, or maybe we'd stick to one diet for two, you know, 20 years. We all have kind of different ways of, of going about this. But the other piece is that when we diet, both physically and mentally, even when we're just kind of mentally obsessed with what's going into our bodies, it fixates, it fixates us on food. It makes us feel hungrier. It makes us feel out of control around food. It makes us feel like food addicts, as I said before, which just reinforces the belief that we need to be on a diet in the first place, not understanding that it's this cycle that we've gotten ourselves into. So there's just so much there. But really, you know, I healed my relationship with food and, and body and it, it totally revolutionized my life. It opened up so much mental space. It made me so much calmer. It made me able to actually enjoy my life and enjoy going out to dinner and not overthink anything and just eat and not feel like a food addict anymore. But a couple years later, I came up against... Uh, you know, I basically, I was like, great. I figured out everything, you know, like I've, you know, my life is great now, but I realized a couple years later that I was still doing very similar things and operating in a very similar way in other areas of my life. And that there was, I had fixed one little piece of this kind of dynamic of control and almost like, you know, fantastical thinking. Like if I can just take care of this one little thing, then everything's going to fall into place. And I was doing it in a million other ways. And it, again, it was this kind of like cultural belief that if you just, you know, if you just micromanage and you just buck up and you just like follow the rules and do what you're supposed to do, everything's going to be fine and everything's going to be perfect. And you will be impressive and beautiful and rich and everything is just going to be great. And so I had to, and this is a lot of what tired as fuck is about. I had to kind of untangle that dynamic in the rest of my life. And, um, and I unfortunately still have to, (laughs) there's still stuff. (laughs) It's the, the the work continues. Yeah. When the, so you said that really perfectly, Caroline, that, so the, the experience of writing and publishing the fuck it diet, going through this process, this long process, lifelong process that I'm sure continues to this day of healing your relationship to food, uh, and, and body image and, and self-acceptance, all the different things that get tied up. It's, it is very complex, right? It's not just about food and what you put into your body. There's so many thoughts, ideas, beliefs, um, social pressures, cultural influences, um, the basically de facto brainwashing that we all kind of biologically experienced when exposed to different forms of media repeatedly and all these different things that you detail in both the fucking diet and tired as fuck. But, um, so, so that's how I understand you ultimately or what ultimately led you to look at these larger and interconnected cultural issues in tired as fuck. Um, in the opening, uh, pages of tired as fuck, you mentioned, that another runaway best-selling book, uh, Marie Kondo's The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, uh, and this idea of decluttering your possessions sparked a deeper realization that you needed to make a life change. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came to be? Yeah. No, it's so funny because I've been writing for a while before I even started writing Tired as Fuck. Oh my God. I'm sorry. My dog is like... We're recording video just for our listeners. We're recording on video too, as we're chatting and your dog's head like floated in a few minutes ago. And I absolutely love his big noggin. 
and now he's giving a lot of attitude to the camera. But um, we'll, have, we'll, we'll have some videos we'll post she's on social like, media. Why are you not petting me more? Like she wanted to like get right up here, breathing into the microphone. Always when we're on video. That's right. <laughs> always, always. Um, so I've been writing about this kind of half joke, half serious uh, healing phase that I went on, which I called my two years of rest. And I called it that because it made me laugh. And it was also something that I was legitimately trying to do. Um, and I, it took me like, I actually forgot until I started writing tired as fuck, trying to explain really the book spend a, <laughs> spends a lot of time. Sorry. That's her coughing again. The book spends a lot of time explaining the exhaustion before it even gets to explaining what I did about the exhaustion. But I had forgotten the Marie Kondo and, you know, decluttering part of the whole thing. But it was, it was like such a big part that led to me trying to quote unquote declutter, not just the stuff in my life, but beliefs and, you know, things that I was forcing myself to do and cultural expectations and pressures that I had taken on. But I got really, really into the life-changing magic of tidying up. And I, I could say that I was starting to treat it like all the other self-help books that I read where I was like, this is it, this is it, this is going to, this is, this is the one that's going to change my life and make everything perfect. But I, I started I, I, I went through the process of, of getting rid of everything that doesn't, as she says, spark joy. And I loved it on so many levels. And there really, there were so many things that I had still that I just had no reason to be keeping. And so it was, it did feel like this symbolic, like letting go and cleansing and trusting that, you know, if I needed something like this in a couple years, it was okay. I was living in a, I was living in a world, you know, there was, there was abundance. I was going to be able to get it again. So it, I, I loved it, you know, just for what the book is about, but I was at a time in my life where I didn't realize how, <laughs> miserable I was in so many ways and how many things I was still forcing myself to do that I should not have been forcing myself to do that were going completely unexamined that I just assumed that I had to do that I was too afraid to let go of. And when I realized that and it was right at the time that I had just decluttered my entire apartment, I realized that this could be applied symbolically to everything else in my life. If I was, and I was really burnt out. It was like all of these things happening at once. I was extremely burnt out. I was at a crossroads in my career of, should I keep pursuing musical theater performing, which was something that I had done for so many years up until that point and really, really made me miserable and stressed and overwhelmed. Um, and it just was so clear that I needed to do what I had just done with all of my physical stuff. I had to do that with the way that my mind worked with the things that I was forcing myself to do. I had to take stock. I had to do like a life audit on all of the things that was depleting me and stressing me out. And that I was, that I was kind of taking on and putting on myself because yeah, people listening to this are going to say, but I have all these things that I have to do. I have kids. I have a job. I can't quit my job. There are so many things that I have to do that I don't want to do that I, I can't just get rid of. And that is true. There are, there are things in our life that we have to do. We don't want to do and it sucks, <laughs> but there are so many things when we, when we are not letting ourselves actually examine them. There are so many things that we take on that we put on ourselves that we don't even realize we don't have, we don't have to do. We don't, we don't have to believe certain things about ourselves. We don't have to beat ourselves up when we're tired, but most of us do. And it's things like that, that I was like, if I can, I need to like totally declutter the way my brain works, the beliefs that I have about what I should and shouldn't be doing. Um, and that is what sparked what I called my two years of rest because I was going to get rid of all of the things that I did not have to do to survive and be a happy person for at least two years. Yeah. And so you mentioned there, Caroline, that burnout was really manifesting. And I know this is 
a big buzzword or buzz phrase in in the culture right now. I'm, I'm, I'm personally actually really happy about it because it feels like the most apt descriptor of this really um, problematic, like chronic stress that people feel that really, I, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll insert my own disclaimer of like, I come from these conversations with so much privilege that I always feel like I need to just be like, I'm a very privileged person to be able to, to say this and talk about it in this way, especially on a, on a podcast with an author like you, but, <laughs> but without creating like a hierarchy or uh, a sense of like competition over, over like who is the most tired, I think we could all, I, you know, without stereotyping, we can all identify that people from historically marginalized and, and modern day still marginalized groups deal with a lot more chronic burnout. It's it's, you know, we can talk about that. You mentioned quite a bit of it in your book. Um, but burnout is kind of, I think, it's becoming more universally known. And there's a lot of forces and factors in play. There's the stuff that we do are on our own, subscribe to different beliefs and uh, pressures that we place on ourselves. You mentioned in the book that two thirds of, of millennials when polled feel an quote unquote extreme pressure to be successful, which is higher than any other, uh, you know, previous generation on record, for example. But there's also these external forces and pressures from society, culture, capitalism, um, white supremacy, the patriarchy, like all these different things that really do force and impress certain sets of, of pressures. I'm wondering for you, for those who haven't read your book yet, um, where did you feel like the burnout was coming from for you? For you? you mentioned uh, the musical theater and things, but and obviously going on... Um, you know, there was obviously a lot there, but I'm curious about what felt mm -hmm. like it was fueling your burnout um, for our listeners. Yeah. Yeah. So just to speak to what you, you just said, I had so much anxiety writing this book and I was writing it during summer 2020 too. So I was like, not 2022, 2020 as well. So I was like, Oh my God, like me being like, Oh, it's tired, you know, like, and I, so I really kind of struggled with that. And that's why I put so much in the book to sort of like explore that for people coming from every angle, like for the people who also feel that way, who are like, Oh, but I'm, you know, my life is good. I shouldn't be tired. And for the people who are like, Hey, you're tired. Like, what about me? Like I, my life is way harder than yours. So what I really, you know, and you'll see when you read the book, if you read the book, but what I realize is, you know, we all, <laughs> we all, can be tired in our own ways. And some people may be more tired than others. Some people may have more resilience than others and can go a lot longer and can handle a lot more. Um, but really being tired and being burnt out should not be a pissing contest because if you're tired and you're burnt out, you're tired and burnt out, right? It doesn't really matter whether someone else is more tired. We need to be able to take care of ourselves if we're going to, you know, keep going. But, um, what was really interesting for me is that at, first of all, at the time, I did not use the word burnout. I didn't even realize that that's what was happening to me. All I knew is that I was really tired, <laughs> really, really tired. And I did not have the physical or emotional energy to keep doing what I was doing and to keep going at the rate I was going and to keep um, kind of relating to myself and relating to my life the way that I had been up until that point. But I had always thought and believed that burnout was purely physical. Like, okay, you've been doing a lot. You've been doing too much. You've been overworking. You've been undersleeping. You're tired. You need to take, you know, three weeks on the beach and you'll come back and your burnout will be healed. What I didn't understand and what I experienced firsthand before I could even start to understand this was that there was so much that had, it, it had taken so long to get to this point. This wasn't like, Oh, this past year has been really hard. I've been just doing a lot. You know, I have been, I've been doing a lot, but it had been, it had been in the works for so, so long. And it was actually my emotional and my, and my mental life that had allowed me to get so run down. It's like I had a leak <laughs> that I, or I had, and sometimes I explain it as like, I had these, these computer programs running in the background of my, 
of my brain that I didn't even realize were there. And it was the guilt. It was the expectations. It was the, the, the voice of telling me constantly, 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 you can't relax. And that was really, that's the core of it. Since I was a teenager and maybe even before then, honestly, I never, ever truly relaxed. I never believed that I was allowed to. There was always something else I felt that I should be doing. There was always some reason that I hadn't worked hard enough. And, you know, even if it's what I was realizing is that even when I took off, even when I took a week off or when, if I took a night off or if I said no to something because I didn't have the energy, it's not like I stayed at home and had a great time and relaxed and, and really recharged. I felt guilty about it the whole time. And that is a state that will not allow you to recharge that you will, you will, you will continue to deplete yourself. If you constantly are in that state of, Oh my God, what I should be doing something else. Something else should be happening. I, I can't believe that I, I took off tonight or I, I better make up for it tomorrow. Like all of that stuff really, really is able to bring you down. So it's, it's the mental and emotional pieces that I think are the, the real reasons that most people are burnt out. And that yeah, is something I, I hear that like compoundings. Oh yeah, yes. I'm sorry to cut yes. you off. I was just gonna say I feel like I hear no. this like compounding pressures to, yes. to like be more, do more, don't let your guard down, and that's kind of like you mentioned the mental and emotional pressures um, that that sound like they just kind of like built up over time. And, and in, in your book, you talk about some of the pressures you were feeling even as a kid, right. When you were performing and singing for, for mm -hmm. like great aunt, so-and-so and grandma, you didn't want to let anybody right, down. Right. So, um, a right. lot of, a lot of great and, and anxiety inducing, uh, 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 stories and, and anecdotes that, that our readers, uh, our listeners will have to read. Um, so, so I, and I want to go, I want to go down one of two routes right now. Maybe you can help me, Caroline, cause I want to talk about burnout that is specifically associated with this pressure to constantly self-improve or become, like I mentioned mm. in your introduction, this, this best version of ourselves, because I feel like that's a big right. part of your book. But maybe we could start with talking about what you've been learning and observing about burnout, specifically with regard to the pandemic. Because as you mentioned, you you had no idea that burnout was the the phrase that described what you're experiencing. And I feel like it, it, the, in our lexicon, burnout is, is being elevated. It's a conversation that's in like news headlines. Now, um, burnout right. is being attributed or, or one of the, uh, one of the factors believed to be influencing the great resignation, which is, you know, about 4 million people every month for the last, what, nine months or so, at least, uh, quitting their jobs. Yeah. Um, there's the pandemic fatigue, you know, the pandemic itself, there's childcare uh, issues that all parents have been experiencing. The World Health Organization, I recently learned, I think in 2019, finally uh, termed burnout as a, a chronic stress disorder or, or a chronic stress, not a disease, but a chronic stress uh, issue that that they believe um, mm -hmm. is, is putting like all workers worldwide at risk. So, there's a lot of focus and emphasis on burnout. I'm curious about what, in light of your desire for, you know, as you said, the, the permission for radical rest that you wanted to give yourself those two years and what you've been observing over the last couple of years, uh, what have you been learning about burnout uh, in addition to it being physical, uh, but, but also emotional and mental? Yeah. So using the, you know, the last two years of, of COVID as an example, not only have people, you know, been juggling more. So like, think about working parents who were trying to juggle homeschool and work at the same time, somehow impossibly. Um, but you know, and then kids being sent home because of exposure and this. So there has been this extra level of actual physical exhaustion, right? But there's also been this nonstop sort of like existential anxiety that people have been experiencing on so many, you know, in so many, even people on both ends of, of the political spectrum have been stressed out of their minds with whatever they believe is going on. Right. And that is enough to, put people into a state of complete overwhelm of not being able to deal. And one of the really interesting things that I learned along the way that kind of 
made me realize that what I was experiencing was burnout and not just being tired was learning that burnout actually manifests as not just being tired, but also symptoms of anxiety and depression, like feeling detached or, you know, not being able to get excited about things or not being able to focus. Um, and you know, that's, that is what I was experiencing when I looked at my calendar and was like, I hate my life. I don't want to keep doing this. And I'm really, really tired. And I need to make some big, big, big changes. And that's what people are experiencing right now. They're like, I am not enjoying the life that I've been living. And it's, it's probably, there are probably a lot of things going on. People who were in the wrong jobs for themselves are, you know, realizing that life is too short. I don't want to be miserable. I can work at home and, you know, get a different job and, you know, not be so miserable day in and day out. And there are also people who are just like, I am, uh, something is not right. Like I am not, I'm not okay. And I don't want to do this anymore. And I need to make, make a big change. And I think, you know, obviously I don't think that the pressure that people have been under is good. It's not good for us. It's not good for our nervous system. It's not good for our bodies or our minds. It's not, it's not good. But if people can take that kind of like rock bottom experience and, and, and make a change and, and realize like, look, you know, I want to figure this out. There's, there's gotta be, life has got to be a little bit better than this. You know, I think that that is a good thing because it's making people kind of reevaluate what's important to them and, you know, have better boundaries and figure out, well, what job do I want to do? If I'm, if I'm going to resign from my job, you know, what, what would I rather be doing? So I think, I think it really makes sense that people are at that point, not just physically, but again, as we were saying that the mental and emotional pressure that we've all been under. Yeah. It reminds me, Caroline, there was a phase of what I thought was like the end of the pandemic or like the start of the end of the pandemic in 2021, where I was reconnecting with people and catching up with like former clients and friends and family members. And I would ask them this, this question of like, do you have, have you had a, a, sil uh, a pandemic silver lining? Meaning like, has mm -hmm. there been like some shred of anything good or positive that's come out of this, this shitty experience, um, just out of curiosity, you know, and I, I had like some people say like, Oh, I finally quit smoking. And I had some people be like, no, there were none. Um, but, but what you, what you mentioned there, like the, the silver lining, I don't say that to be, uh, you know, pithy about it, but about there being some good to it. It, it does also remind me of a, a New York times article that I read maybe like 10 years ago about, um, the upside to depression, I think was the title or, or like the, the benefit of depression was the, the article and, and the author was exploring why does de depression exist? Um, is it an adaptive trait somehow, which is a pretty controversial thing to say, because you don't want to be like, you know, someone says that they're depressed or anxious or burned out. You don't want to say like, hey, congratulations, like you did it, like you're going to really get somewhere now. But I think it is worth exploring that if if it can be a means to an end, you know, I personally had some experiences with mild depression, um, in particular, probably thir 13 odd years ago now. And in retrospect, once I got through that period in my life, I was like, oh, what a what a gift it really did turn out to be because I don't think I would have made such dramatic changes in my life had it not been for something literally every day being like, hey, Dave, you're miserable. Hey, Dave, like life sucks. Hey, Dave, you're also like 23 and privileged and shouldn't feel this way just because, you know, like life is short. Um, and so that's what I'm hearing you say that maybe uh, the great resignation is, is kind of like uh, catalyzing a lot of these questions, doubts, or bringing enough awareness to light for people that they may be saying, you know what? I don't deserve to be underpaid. I don't deserve to be overworked. I don't deserve to, um, you know, to, to experience time theft from my employer, whatever the case may be that's causing this, you know, migration of people from one job to the other, um, which I, I think is going to be really interesting to see in hindsight. And maybe that'll be in, in a future book that you write about. Oh yeah. No. And when you said that, I thought this many times about my relationship with food, my really, really fraught, miserable, dysfunctional relationship with food. I have thought so many times, oh, I wish I could go back and do it all over again and never have experienced that at all. 
But then I realized that I would not be who I am today. I would not have the career that I have, you know, so much would not have happened. I have no idea who I would be. Maybe I would be way better (laughs) and further along, but really what it, what I feel like is it, it, it was, it was a terrible experience, but it was a gift in so many ways because I have an understanding about things that if my life had been a breeze and nothing had been difficult for me, I might have a very shallow understanding of, of certain parts of life, or I may, you know, never have had to figure certain things out. You know, there, there's, or I may not have understood people who have had similar experiences. I think that's huge too, um, is to be able to relate to people and their own struggles. Um, but yeah, I, I, I do subscribe to the (laughs) maybe, uh, polarizing belief that usually very often there is a gift in the, in the difficult times and in the difficult experiences. Yeah, I, re- I really like. I really appreciate Caroline you saying that the 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 journey that you've been through has given you the perspective to be able to like un- better understand, empathize, relate to, hold compassion for the people who may you know still be in an expression of the journey that you've already been on too. And we're all, of course, we're all on our own healing journeys in our own way. And it's you know nothing can really teach you to care for people like learning that you need to care for yourself in a lot of ways. Um, and which is ironic because a big part portion of uh, tired as fuck is about this pressure to constantly be improving. And so there's, there's a, this is a very deeply nuanced conversation. There's no quick answers here. I think like we just need to say that because like, obviously this is life. Um, but there is no like perfect diet for anybody. There is no uh, perfect self-help recipe to, to, you know, cure all your woes. And I'm really interested, as I mentioned a moment ago, that this pressure to constantly self-improve and, and be the best version of yourself, um, was another kind of like aha moment for you in recognizing how tired and how burnt out you are. Tell me a little bit about how you've observed busyness as a culture in, especially like modern America. I think we could probably say like, you know, uh, the Western world or Western industrial world, uh, the capitalist world, like so forth, but busyness as a culture, how do you, how, how have you seen this like obsession with being busy all the time harm us and perpetuate exhaustion and burnout like writ large? Yeah, you know, I think this is one of the things that was very interesting for me to go from healing my relationship with food to trying to healing heal my relationship with busyness and obsession with productivity. Um, and I never would have identified, I never would have said to you, hi, I'm Caroline and I am obsessed with productivity. Like I didn't see myself that way, but it, it was the way that I was operating on the subconscious level. But the parallel I think is that busyness and constantly being productive is a distraction. It is a way to numb the pain push it down, push it away, ignore it, not have to deal with it because it's very uncomfortable. And we live in a culture that doesn't teach us what it is and why it exists and how feeling it's not going to destroy us. It's going to allow us to just process it. We don't know that. We don't learn that. You know, um, we have to have a really good therapist or, you know, stumble upon the right teachers to even get that information in the first place. Um, in our culture. And yes, thankfully, we're starting to have more, you know, because of yoga, because of certain, you know, because of therapy, because of certain things that we're now kind of incorporating into our culture, some people are able to have that information. But really, the busyness thing is just like this obsession with diets. It is a distraction. And it is so socially acceptable and rewarded that we will not realize the 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 downsides, the dark sides. We don't, you know, if we're able to just kind of push through and get all this external validation and praise and money and, you know, the perfect body to put these things together, 
until we hit that wall of, oh my God, there's something, you know, I've, I've run my body into the ground or I've run my nervous system into the ground until we hit that point. We're not going to know that there's anything wrong with what we're doing because from the outside, it looks like we're doing everything right. But there, but in so many ways, you know, the, the thing that makes it so tricky is that it is the socially acceptable, praised, rewarded thing that we just assume is a good thing, a good way to operate. And it's this really, really effective drug, so to speak. It's this way to ignore everything and just focus on micromanaging control and being praised for it, you know? Yeah. So Caroline, there, I feel like there are elements of what we're talking about now with avoidance, numbing out distraction that are, I, I think this may be like an ethnocentric thing for me to say, but I think that they're kind of universal. I feel like there's a lot of like humanness because if we go through all like, you know, spiritual texts and religious texts and uh, if different philosophies and religions, there's always this element of like the human being struggling with their own mind and needing to learn to come into relationship with it. But I also know that there are cultures in the world today that aren't so tormented with their own selves. You know, there, there, aren't, there are cultures in the world today that aren't seeing rising levels of, you know, teenage suicide, um, depression, anxiety, uh, opioid use and addiction, substance use writ large, like the diet culture, which which feels like so uh, it feels as American as as apple pie in a lot of ways, like the new fad <laughs> diet, like here it yeah. is. What do you think if we are hiding or running from something or, or avoiding something as a society, do you have any sense about like what it is that we're so desperate to hide from? That's a great question. My first answer, I'm sure there's more to this answer, and I'm sure that it's more complicated than what I'm about to say, but my understanding and something that I kind of came to through trying to figure out my relationship with food and my relationship with my body was that we in our culture are very, very wrapped up in our minds. And we really, you know, we really kind of prioritize the mind and there's something wrong with the mind. The mind is a wonderful, wonderful tool. We need it. But that we are very, very, very disconnected from our bodies and it manifests in many different ways. But one of the big ways that it manifests is that we do not feel our emotions in real time, because we, as I kind of alluded to before, we don't understand them and we don't understand that they are not bad and that there's nothing wrong with, with feeling. Um, but what happens when we start to feel an emotion and then we kind of avoid feeling it. And the way I'm going to describe this is you could either look at it as symbolic, or you could look at it as kind of woo woo and like talking about energy and, you know, embodying ourselves with our spirit, but we need to have our awareness, like our actual physical awareness of what it feels like in our bodies, in our bodies. We need to feel what it feels like to be alive and to have a body. And most of us do not. And all of our emotions and all of our intuition and wisdom that our bodies can give us for that matter are in our bodies. It's, it's, it's down here. It's not up here. And when we're in a state of constantly avoiding. So what I was going to say is when we feel that discomfort, we kind of pop up into our minds and we start thinking and we do not feel because we don't think it's either safe or we don't think it's um, good. We think it's weak or stupid or, um, you know, embarrassing. So what that 
leads to is a nervous system full of unprocessed energy and unprocessed emotions and unprocessed experiences, which is why we need to go to therapy. <laughs> uh, I appreciate you saying that as a future, therapy. as a future mental health counselor, I, I, I appreciate you uh, singing the praises of, of the profession. Obviously I don't need to be making a pitch because everybody needs and deserves good mental men, mental health care. There's not enough of it. There's a limited access, but I appreciate you shouting out therapy because I agree with you. It's something that we all need yeah, it's support a, with. It's and a, I, yeah, go ahead. No, no. I was just going to say, you know, like it is so important. And then, you know, I personally believe that the the best therapists have an understanding of the somatic part of healing as well, because they are connected. They're not separate, you know? Right. And I think that's another, so much of our culture and even medicine is so uh, focused and specialized on one part of our, of our body. Um, instead of seeing how all of these aspects work together, all of these aspects of our lives affect our bodies and our brains and all of this. I know I really don't think anything can be isolated really the way we, we try to isolate it. But to answer your question from before, what I think so many of us are running from is feeling <laughs> and feeling mm. the backlog of emotions and feel and, and processing the backlog, backlog of experiences that have been overwhelming and confusing and difficult and stressful and overwhelming. I mean, not to mention traumatic experiences that we haven't been able to process. Um, there's so much there for most of us that we don't even know is there that we don't even understand like the dynamic of why we feel so overwhelmed every time we do a breathing exercise that like sometimes calms us down and sometimes brings us up against the things that are, are ready to come up and be felt and processed. I think that so much of, of what we're running from, whether we realize it or not, is just ourselves and, and being in our bodies and feeling what it feels like to be a human. Um, and I think it leads to uh, any number of, of addictions and, and kind of dysfunctional relationships with different aspects of our lives, be it our relationship with food, our relationship with work, our relationship with busyness, all of, any sort of addiction, any sort of substance abuse. I think that this is a, a big, big, big piece of, of all of that. That's really beautifully put, Carolyn. I, I, I think it was a maybe an unfair question to ask you because I was basically like, what's wrong with, with everything? <laughs> I'm sure there's more. I'm sure there are other, other things, but I think that's a big piece. I really, especially culturally, because it's something that yeah. culturally, you're not going to learn it unless you seek it out. The, and the over-association with mind, which is really prevalent I mean, not just now, but for the last few hundred years since like Descartes, I think therefore I am. And ironically, the dawn of, of the modern era of, of science and medicine that has followed, which have given us so much and, and created so many advancements throughout society, civilization, for better and for worse, you know, industrialization for better and for worse. But there's, it's almost a real, it's almost its own religion now where like, it's the religion of mind, of thought, of ego. Mm -hmm. And I'm not mm -hmm. the type, uh, cause I've, I've drifted in and out of spiritual circles for a while. I'm not the type that believes like the ego is evil. We need to destroy the ego, dissolve the ego. Like our ego right. is what makes us human, right? It's personality. Yeah. It's not inherently bad. Exactly. Right. But, but, but over, like over the, identifying yeah. with the ego and, and, and mind and only associating with mind is not fully human. It's like just accessing a, a little part of the, of the human experience that we all get to have. Yes, totally. Well, Caroline, before we wrap up here, uh, you've been very generous with your time and I just want to uh, honor and respect your, your schedule. Um, I'm curious about the, the nature of your writing, as I mentioned, is so personal uh, and vulnerable, but so full of like grace and 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 humor, which makes it such a delight to read. I'm just curious, the, the writer in me wants to ask the writer in you, where do you fall on the spectrum these days of writing and sharing like so much about yourself in terms of like, what do you ever feel an emotional hangover from what you share or has writing and telling your story felt more like cathartic and healing for you than, than like overexposing. 
That's such a good question. Um, and I can't say that I am like a master at this by any means, but there are a lot of things that I don't write about in real time. And I think that that's helpful. And in fact, I think a while ago, I, I listened to some Brene Brown podcast episode where she talked about, you know, if you share things publicly that you're still in the middle of healing from, it's it's probably going to end up being stressful for you. There's going to be that emotional hangover. There's going to... It's You're kind of um, exposing yourself to to too much feedback while you're still in a kind of vulnerable state and that it's, it's a lot healthier to go through the healing process. And then when you're in a stronger state to be able to write about it. And I think that's what I do in a lot of ways. Um, I get to a point where I have processed enough of it that it doesn't, that I don't feel as, um, I don't feel as kind of vulnerable around certain things. Um, everything in tired as fuck, there's a lot in tired as fuck that I, you know, I thought like, Oh my God, am I, am I, am I sharing too much? Am I like, is this, is this a bad idea? And then I think like, there's a lot that I didn't say too. And I think that that's important as well. I think it's good to have things just to yourself or things that you're not ready to talk about that yet, that maybe in five, 10 years, you will. Um, but I knew I, I had to really go through the kind of like the thought experiment of, am, am I really okay with everybody or anybody being able to know these things, uh, you know, these experiences that I had or these things that I thought or these things that I did. Um, and I had to be, I had to be okay with it, or I had to make sure that everything in the book were just things that I really was okay with, with people knowing. Um, but also, you know, 10 years ago, I probably would not have been able to write about some of the things that were happening 10 years ago. I needed the time to, to kind of process and heal myself and then able, be able to write about it from a, a healed place and a stronger place. It's such a great lesson to give to other writers and storytellers out there. So I really appreciate you you sharing that. Um, Caroline Dooner, she's the author of The Fuck It Diet and Tired as Fuck. Thank you so much for joining us on The New Story Is. I really appreciate your work and this conversation that we had today. Thank you. This was awesome. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. We'll be back soon with a fresh interview for you. In the meantime, if you're feeling generous and want to help support our show, please rate and review The New Story Is wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others to find the show. Until next time, I'm Dave Rosillo. This has been The New Story Is. Bye for now.